0: Welcome to The War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Joe, welcome to The War Room.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, well, let's get into it. The book is Red Sky Morning, the Epic True Story of Texas Ranger Company F. Okay, so I'm in Texas. Um... So the Texas Rangers obviously have a couple of meetings here. the The baseball team, and of course the the police. Um, maybe outside of Texas, they they think of Walker Texas Ranger, or they might think of you know the baseball team. So unpack exactly who the Texas Rangers are for the for the state of Texas uh, for those who you know aren't familiar with what they do here.
1: Yeah, sure. And one of the interesting things about them is that there's no real analog to them in other states. Um, they have a very unique history they have a very unique development and uh and it starts in the you know in the days of you know the Indian wars in texas and that's the the route to the Texas Ranger They change names they change missions they change targets over and over and over again through their through their history and uh the the one version of, as you will uh of the Texas Rangers that we think of are police, but they weren't always police they were mounted militia um Then they became police and they reverted back to sort of a mounted militia during the Mexican Revolution and then reverted back to their sort of police, um, the police role. And so my guys um, in Company F are in that period between the mounted militia roles. The first time the Texas Rangers were operating as as cops, they were policing their own. They were policing uh, cowboys or policing, you know, um, protecting courthouses from from riots, really filling the role that that we associate modern rangers as doing. Um, so that's what really made it an interesting era to study. This is the the roots of the modern ranger force. Um, so it's uh, and it also has some pretty tight, tight Titanic figures in the in the ranger world. But people back then didn't know what the rangers did. Um, there's contemporary accounts saying what do they do? They just ride around and shoot people. Who are they shooting and why are they shooting them? It's exactly why I I wrote the book in, in sort of the way that I did. You know, who, what what were they up to? What were the working conditions like? What was the tactics and the procedures? And how did they do it? You know, there were a, a company of 10 men who would get dropped into a county that where the, they probably weren't that aware of to break up some sort of entrenched criminal activity. Um, and they would get the job done, for, sometimes really violently. How did they do that? Um, even back then, people didn't know. People don't know how that works now either. Um, so, uh, so there was a lot, people know the texas rangers but they don't know a lot about them which uh i thought was interesting as well that to sort of explore in the book
0: it kind of sounds like the way you described it there they're dropped into a county kind of sounds like you know tombstone like the guys just roll up and next thing you know they're they're running the town and they're the good guys and they're fighting the bad guys so you talk about the different changes uh iterations that they had um what led to a switch from focusing here to focusing there was it public sentiment was it top-down pressure was it just they didn't really have anything to do so they found something else to do the rangers the key to the rangers adaptability and survivability as a
1: as any kind of you know, especially law enforcement is adaptability whatever the new threat would be they would be applied to face it so if it was um you know an oil to, you know it, it went from you know frontier defense to all right now cattle thievery is an enormous problem especially when the state politicians would think so. Um, all right, now fence cutting is an enormous problem because the landowners really want to put up fences and, and open, range, um, you know, open range cattle. The open range was not efficient and, and very inhumane and costly. So the fences made a lot of sense. Um, didn't make a lot of sense to open range farmers. So there was a lot of tension there. The rangers are called in. Is there, there's a family feud out of control, calling the rangers there's a murder on the loose call on the rangers mm. you know that that's uh that's where the order sort of came from was, was uh and, and those orders would changed the targets would change um why did they change from fighting native americans to the criminals because the native americans were gone they had been defeated so um but they needed to to have a reason to exist and the governor had a reason to call them in well there was you know rampant lawlessness where the Local law was either complicit or completely uh, inefficient, or just plain scared. So, uh, so the go- it was the 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 tool of whoever is the governor. That's the rangers, and that sort of determined their targets, and that determined how they changed o- over time. Um, and uh, and it, it it's a very confusing situation in that regard. But when you when you get close to it, um, it makes a lot more sense. And instead of tombstone, I was thinking more of like heat you know there's two two groups of very dangerous well-armed people in in the book that's the the connor family and then the texas rangers company and they both are sympathetic they're both culpable they're they're you know they're on a collision course to meet each other and people are going to get killed um it's not good guy bad guy so much as it is um two forces of texas nature who are going to meet and uh and that's just great drama for a book but it's also sort of instrumental in who were they targeting? Who were the quote unquote criminals? And they were criminals, um, but but why were the rangers called on to intervene um, in this situation, but not that situation? And that that's part of the backdrop. And like any good you know reality crime, uh, true crime kind of a drama, there's the there's superior officers who are giving the orders. Um, why are they doing that? Uh, that that's part of the tapestry I was trying to capture in the book.
0: And so, who is the Connor family?
1: So the Connor family are from Georgia. They go to uh, the, to uh, Florida, and then they go to East Texas. Um, the commonality there being they know how to make money um, and live in very challenging uh, piney swamp terrain. And they are hog farmers primarily, um, fairly well regarded in, in Sabine County, which is in, in the... Um, in deep east Texas, um, they are also very independent, violent people in in many regards. And they get into a feud with their neighbors, some of which are brother-in-laws of the Connor children. So it's an inter-family feud as well as a family feud. And uh, sure enough, two bodies are found by the, the the side of a trail one day and the Connors are clearly the the ones who are the main suspects right and after that they become an outlaw family they get a, a, they're arrested um, several of them are sent to jail the rest are broken out of jail by a, by a downtown mob and they go on the lam for years uh, intimidating anyone who tries to go into their domain to root them out no one knows that they're master hunters each uh, there's Willis and his sons um, as well as a daughter and, and his wife and and they are all characters in, in the book as well and they have their own sort of personal dramas that that help destroy the, the family and the county um, at least for an entire generation. But uh, they are a formidable foe against the Texas Rangers because they're not on the run. They're not a gang that's committing rampant crimes. They are in their own element and it's an element the Rangers aren't used to. Um, they can't track their master trackers, the Texas Rangers are when their horses and in in a dusty desert environment, but put them in a swampland and Willis Connor has all the the advantages. So they get called, the Rangers get called in to root them out and they fail. Um, and when they called in a second time, things get a lot more bloody.
0: So yeah, unpack that for us. When you say that there's two bodies found, um, you know, I start thinking CSI, DNA, none of that was around, um, so there's no eyewitnesses. How how did they go about trying to solve these murders? The um
1: one of the things that I was really I'll just say I'll just say really lucky in finding was a there was a very competent doctor who did the preliminary examination of both the bodies. Um Now, coroner reports back then are, are very notorious for either being crooked or being done by someone who has no medical training, it's just a formality. But, um, but the coroner in this case brought a doctor along because uh, he knew that he was not qualified to, to, to do this kind of thing. So we've got a very reputable person who took you know careful notes. So we do have some forensics that you can put together. He got the angle of, of the shots, um, the kind of uh, uh, ammunition used recovered from the body where the shots were located Um, and indicated close range uh, head wounds. Um, He put a a metal rod into the wounds and and to determine the trajectory and both the the people that were killed were finished off execution style by his estimation. So we have all these rich details on how and that's exactly how they pieced it together back then. There was also a wadding found um, at the at the scene, which was preserved in an envelope and brought back and that in the court case the prosecution linked that with wadding that was uh, made uh, that address was made from the same material so it matched material from the the Connor household so so far there's a lot of forensics and it seems pretty damning now the really damning part comes from the testimony from people inside the Connor household and Um, Now we're going from the law part to the legal part, uh, to the order part. But um, but I try to capture both in in the book. And uh, and there is some testimony that could have been tainted that was introduced in, in the trial by by two people in the Connor household. And I and based on that testimony, it really does seem like an innocent member of the Connor family is the one sent to prison. Where the guilty ones are the ones left in jail and break out and never do time, so so there is an injustice that feeds the Connor family and feeds the community. Hence that mob jailbreak that gets the Connors out of j- uh, um, out of uh, jail in Hempstead. So um, so there's so so it's it's very nuanced. Even the guilty are innocent, and 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 you know and, and the and the and vice versa. So it's a very ugly kind of a tale, and it wasn't easy to untangle all this, but. I, again, I got lucky with some really, really good sources when I went to Sabine County and, um, and interviews oral histories from people who lived through it, um, as well as the newspaper accounts and the court account records and the Ranger records. So um, it, for, for being a long time ago, it was pretty uh, it's pretty fresh and, and there's a lot of details that, that help the story kind of come alive, as well as knowing what the hell happened
0: right so you mentioned some of the kind of the the the, what we call forensic evidence the the, uh the wadding that matched they kind of put the rail uh the bars in there to do shot trajectories when you go back and look at that stuff how much of that were maybe they because that's kind of surprising to me like i don't know how they would how they would match the wadding that's that's i'm curious about that but but how much of this when you look at it you go oh wow they were far more advanced than maybe we would think or is it maybe 25 percent more advanced and then they did they did a bunch of stuff that's like oh no this this was not helpful, but at the time, it's all they knew.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that when it came to the preservation of evidence, A, everyone knew that it was going to be really important. This is not a routine thing that just happened. This is, you know, th- these families had been feuding, fighting, threatening for a long time. And these are entrenched families in that county. So this was the start to a war, right? So everyone knows we've got to tread carefully a because if it, you know it, it's going to go to some kind of court case but b if we don't do this right there's going to be an outright shooting war that happens sooner rather than later there'll be frontier justice we've got to do the actual justice you know really really well and it's got to go well for for the for the victims also the wadding match part of that is the testimony that comes from the house um it, did you do you recognize this wadding and then the 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 uh, the witness says, "Yeah, Miss um, Nan had a dress made of the exact same material." That's it. So, is it CSI? No. Is it bad in a courtroom? Absolutely. What's worse in the courtroom is that the, the Willis Connor and and his sons, none of them would defend themselves. None of them would testify or say what, what actually happened. So, you know, it didn't take much to to, to push the needle over. You know, um, as a matter of fact, their defense attorney later on becomes um, one of the members of, of the community posse meant to, to hunt them down yeah. because he thought that they'd threatened his life. So there's a lot going against the Connors. There's a lot to the idea that the Connors are being persecuted unfairly. At the end of the day, when you look at what the Connors, what Willis Connor told his, his friends and neighbors, they did kill those guys. Um, it, it's not as cold-blooded of an ambush as uh, the prosecution made out, but it was them. So, um, so again, even the guilty are innocent and the, and vice versa. Um, and that's just, you know, an ugly East Texas, you know, true crime story, you know, in the 1800s, just like it would be today, probably.
0: Well, I mean, today having a posse going to hunt someone down or the the citizens breaking people out of a jail would seem to be (laughs) a little bit different. Like, is that, was that common for the citizens to get mad and to break people out of jail?
1: Listen, all this is extreme, even for back then. I mean, you look at the news coverage, the way that everything was, the people reacted to this, you know, the entire county was in a complete uproar like they've never seen, and people say even since, right? So this was anomalous behavior. The Connors were above and beyond a different kind of, mm-hmm. of quote-unquote, outlaw band um, in, in Texas. They weren't, they weren't on a crime spree. They weren't even in it for the money. They wanted to be left alone. Primarily, they wanted to rule the range, you know, like they had had been, and that made them very sympathetic for a long time um, to a lot of people. But the damage that that they caused to their own family and to Cibecue County became too much. And when the Rangers failed to bring them to heel, frontier justice took over, bounty hunting took over, and the neighbors started turning on neighbors. And um, in the ensuing bloodshed. And innocent people get killed, including a ten-year-old boy. So it's uh, it, it, it's if anything, it, it kind of doubles as a lesson in you know when the rangers fail, you know ranger justice is pretty rough, right? Mm-hmm. But frontier justice is actually a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is an example of that. And again, it's all it's all pretty nuanced. But uh, but at the end of the day, you look at what happened to the Connor family and how it went down. Um, it, it was not left, you know, better left in the hands of, of, uh, of the mob.
0: So was it, so you have the murder of the, 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 uh, the Connor family, and then you kind of have this frontier justice. Was that something that's going to be prosecuted the same way, or is there a certain point to where it kind of gets out of hand and, uh, the officials are like, let's just kind of temper the crowd and bring things back. How, how would they handle that? Oh, frontier pro- justice? Prosecuted
1: hell. They got reward money. That's how I know who did it. <laughs> um, you know, um, yeah, that they, the, the, you know, that defense attorney amongst other people were complaining to the governor that these people were out of control and they put a dead or alive bounty on them. And that was enough. Um, I think, you know, at, at the end of the day that there was enough groundswell in the county, there's also some personal drama here, you know, show Lafemme, you know, fed Connor, which is Willis's Connor son. Um, was very jealous of his wife's relationship with another in-law who was on the other side of the feud. And he was seen, you know, by her pointing a gun at him, you know, while he was helping around the house, quote unquote. So uh, so there was some reason, other reasons besides money, right, mm-hmm. that, that were percolating in, the, in, the, <laughs> in this feud that were, would drive some of these decisions. Um, that's one of several personal sort of re- reasons that sort of popped up in the research. But they sure as hell cash that money. Um, they, they collect it on, <laughs> on the deaths of, uh, of uh, even, even I, won't, I don't want to spoil too much, but even uh, one of the Connor family members is killed in that shootout where the 10 year old boy is killed. Mm-hmm. And they not only collect the money from the state, but one of the posse actually tries to pass a hat around um, within town saying, hey, we took care of your problem for you. And he's run out of town, basically you know people screaming that, that you know he's a murderer and should be ashamed of himself so the mood of the county really changes between sympathy for the Connors to hatred of the Connors to after their destruction sympathy for the Connors yet again and that's one of the reasons why everything was sort of swept under the rug afterwards um not only prosecuted but not spoken of so we know about you know the hatfields and the mccoys there's museums and tours they were content to talk about it that these families in east texas a they're very insular and b they're still intermarried they want things to be peaceful there's no good could come up from talking about this so they didn't tell their folks about it um they didn't tell their children they didn't tell their cousins they no, no one talked about it um in town no one talked about it so that left it sort of un, uncovered and i've heard from family members who say you know our history is is different from this there were things that they did not talk about and swept under the rug this is the 21st century you know and the oral history of the family have switched around oh the rangers came and shot this one that you know this happened that happened you know and when you un unpackage it some of those oral histories were were, were, you know were mistaken um and they were they were happy to, to get someone who gave like sort of both sides of the story
0: Yeah, I mean, we think about that time period as a long time ago, but in a lineage, it's what you know, like a great great grandfather could have directly been around for that. So it's not that far along.
1: Yeah, you can. I went to some grave sites um, with one of the few, with the first few victims, um, great 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 nephew, Um, and um, it was really, it was really interesting, just because. He, he still felt that connection. He'd lived there. He was also a county historian and, uh, and knew the story quite well. So he's maybe more connected than most, but he stood there and he told me the story of the, the church that used to stand there, they're building a church and the people building a church heard the gunshots. And, um, and I looked up at the testimony and that part of the oral history is absolutely true. Um, uh, every single word of it. So and you're standing there where the guy's buried and you know that the gunshots happened and, and, that's why you, when you're writing a book, you always you always have to go to where you're writing about. You know, um, it's not just imposter syndrome. You really do get a better sense of what of the not just the geography, but the mood and the people and um, and the connection that um, and the obligation that you have to tell the dead people's story correctly. Um, it feels very weighty,
0: you know, a bit. And so, how do you go about trying to determine which characters are important? Which scenes are important? Obviously, there can be no definitive history. Something like this, there's too much. You would have to cut some out uh, to, to, to write a book. So, how did when you re- researched this and, and thought about it, like, how did you figure out? Okay, this is the story that I want to tell in this larger narrative.
1: Oh, I, you know, usually I have a very pat answer for this, and 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 I'm usually quite proud of myself. And oh, I tease the story out of the blah blah blah, and you find the the, the nexus points and the, the some <laughs> of the best examples of something a lot. But Red Sky was a real bear, and I and I did a bad job of that um, be, because um, the Connor story had never been told, right? And I went into this as a Ranger book, and the Rangers were going to be popping in and out of several criminal sort of um, enterprises and and doing what they do, and we get to know. It'd be like uh, seasons of Justified, and like mm. you know each one of their you know stop ins where you'd right. learn something about the characters and they'd all grow and and all this but then I met the Connors, right who were going to be a linchpin always but they turned into recurring yeah. characters beyond no one had told the story and I was finding stuff no one had ever um published before and so now it became heat instead so mm. some of that is organic some of it is not it it makes for a very weighty narrative and I didn't want to cut anything um I don't want to cut from the Ranger side. I not want to cut from the Connor side. Um, it, it I wanted to put everything in there, and so damn it, I it's a book, so I did <laughs> Um, some people really dig it, and I think some people think it's it's uh there's too much. Or who's that? I I you know to me, every time you meet a character, if you know their backstory, you get a bit of a universe build, right? Mm-hmm. And so I indulge that a lot <laughs> in this mm-hmm. book. And to me, it makes it more interesting, and and you could actually, re- you know, maybe reread it. Um, uh, and I I try to be definitive, and usually that is at the expense of narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Moby Dick didn't didn't benefit by him trying to be, you know, the definitive whaling, you know, <laughs> um, how to narrative either. It destroyed the narrative, you know. Mine isn't that bad. It's wow! I just said I'm better than Moby Dick. Um,
0: this interview's I, over. I was, I was like, wait, this wait. interview's over.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh but in a, in a similar way uh i didn't want to cut anything i wanted to leave all of it in because i thought this is my bite at that apple um yeah. and it did, it did pair it, it, they do pair nicely and comparing the all the different characters and i don't regret it but mm-hmm. it's a different kind of read than the usual yeah. reward that you get for cutting more and being more judicious than that um this is more of a rich meal than I'm used to serving up. My previous book, for example, Inferno, is, is, is actually pretty lean. Um, there's a lot of characters of action, but it's based on one person's mm. biography and one person's mm. experience. And the universe built around him, you need it to understand what he's gone through and what he means in the grand scheme of things. Right. This is a deeper dive th- than that. And uh, um, and again, that's a leaner meal. This yeah. is a more of a rich um multi-course kind of a thing
0: well it's it's interesting because you you brought Moby Dick it's I was talking to someone about Moby Dick the other day um I've been going through it um slowly I don't I don't you know pound through it um it because it, it's so it's so different of a taste to what um I'm, re- I'm listening to a series right now called Hell Divers post-apocalyptic you know fighting monsters you know when you go to Moby Dick it's just not the same and I'm not saying that one's better or worse. I mean, I think Moby Dick, actually, um, the way that he writes and, and kind of weaves stuff in there, is actually it's a lot better. Except for I'm used to drink, I'm used to eating a lot of hell divers you know, or, mm-hmm. or kind of fast paced fiction, and and so it's interesting because it, you know we have to be careful to say, oh well, I like this, therefore that is good. Whereas, it's like, well, no, 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 sometimes this slower, this this different perspective. is Contemporary
1: kind of cool. reviewers did not expect to see entire chapters to where he just press pause and tell you every cleat and every maneuver and it's fascinating and it's actually well written from like a magazine like i used to work for Popper mechanics and it's like this is a gold mine and it's not even poorly written but does that belong in such a brilliant tight narrative of you know the the the, 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 the man and the fish and mm-hmm. the, the witness i mean it's such a tight brilliant story it's almost like a, a you know He's trying to do too much, right? He didn't yeah. want to cut anything. And, uh, you know, that's, to me, what you leave out sometimes is, is more important than what you leave in. And I think even at the time, critics would say it's a dense piece of work. You got to work sure. your way through it. But th- his evocative writing is absolutely brilliant. I mean, right. I, I, I'll st- I'll, I, I can't ha- hold a candle to that kind of stuff. I mean, you yeah. can describe water. In so many different ways and conditions, <laughs> I, you know, I salute on it. It's amazing, yeah. and he gave us some of the best archetypes arc of our time. So, yeah, no, but please, but uh, but did the stuff about the, you know, but did the narrative suffer from all the excess info? Yes, yes. Did yeah, the yeah, same yeah, No, thing, no I'm just simply saying did the that, same I, thing. Be argued about Red Sky Morning? Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think I think it's just it's it's important because we do a lot of history books on this show, and we always talk to the we want to hear the perspective, and and just it's just a. Sometimes I was at a uh, this thing the other day um, and they were talking about for the kid's school, they, they wrote a new math program and someone goes, well, I don't understand why we'd want to teach this type of math um, compared to the old system um, because this type of this, this old school is, is how I've, I've done it. And there, there's a sense in which reading stuff, learning stuff from different perspectives is a tool that's valuable from the reader's perspective. And sometimes as readers, you think, well, if it doesn't fit the palette that I like, um, therefore there's no, there's no added value. And I would suggest that, being able to read through Moby Dick um, is a tool that readers should ascribe to have, that they can read through something, they can power through, and 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 learn to appreciate that. Yes, maybe it's too long, it's too dense, but also, mm-hmm. oh wow, there's a lot of beauty here. So uh, to me, there's a sense in which it's like, hey, yeah, it might not be the the the, the next Mitch Rat book, but also that that's not necessarily relative to every time you sit down and read. You have to be, oh, I have to be constantly entertained because um, there's a lot of meat out there for us to enjoy. So that would that's all I'm getting at.
1: Exact. I think that the difference is enjoyment versus entertainment. I think you said it really well. I think it, it, you can be entertained by books and you should be, um, mm-hmm. but, but you don't have to be for there to be value there. And yeah, there are payoffs, especially in reading that writers don't do as much. I don't think anymore, um, which is the slow burn, the payoff, right? Um, you want everything in episode one. You know, you want everything in the first couple. You you don't ever want to be lost for too long. And Mm -hmm. I think that some authors are great about, I think Neil Stevenson is, is, is one of these authors who will drop you into the middle of something that's happening and you have to read your way out of it chapter by chapter. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I just got my footing, you know, (laughs) cryptonomicon now where the hell am I? i'm i in manila what i don't even know what year i'm in right it's not it's not thomas pinch on that you're going to get it sooner or later <laughs> mm-hmm. but um but he he's not afraid to give the readers the benefit of the doubt i'm saying they're going to stick with it and then give them information give them some kind of other hook mm-hmm. and trust that their patients will carry it through as a journalist that's death as an author <laughs> I'm trying right. Right. Um, to, to embrace some of that. And I can introduce a character in the third chapter and let it sit until the eighth and then boom, there they are like, right. All right. All right. Well, maybe I need to not drop another reference. Maybe that's too much. Like you got to try and calibrate it. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's narrative, you know, when to withhold and when to, um, when to give, um, that's hard. And that's a lifetime of, of, of trying and tinkering and, and, and writing and doing it over and over and over again in different situations. And, and it is a learning process and and it, it won't, won't stop. That's what I like about it. You know, I'm hoping I'm still getting better at this when I'm in my eighties, if I, I'm still kicking around.
0: <laughs> okay. So I do want to talk about uh, SpaceX and Elon Musk here in a second, but, but um, just a couple of standard questions I asked for books like this. What was the biggest surprise that 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 you found researching this book.
1: I have to say that I pitched, I I did research, pitched and sold the book. Um, without the benefit of the probably the biggest greatest resource that that I stumbled on. Um, and I had heard about this book that uh, that an author had done. He came through and did a research project. And interviewed a lot of the firsthand witnesses um, and descendants um, of firsthand witnesses mostly um, of the feud. And never was published, never submitted, I just there, but he put it together in a in a book form that was annotated, right? It wasn't like a ready for publication type thing, but it was pretty damn close. It should have been published. Um, very pro-Connor, very, very pro-Connor. But the amount of legwork that he did, especially back in the early 80s, is very impressive, and it took him a long time. So those firsthand, first of all, it was great to validate the research I'd already put together, Um, you know, having another set of eyes saying, here's here's this, here's that, here's newspapers. There are databases that I could hit from my desk that he didn't even know existed. So that was, you know, so there's stuff that I had, but he had those firsthand interviews that's absolute gold right so i went to sabine county and i met with the 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 senate and the historical um the guy in the the county historian and he had a copy of the book and i flipped through and i said wow this is exactly what i was looking for and we buddied around for for the day and he showed me the graves and the you know all the different sites and and um i said thank you so much this is amazing you know if, if you give me a copy of that book, that I'll probably promise I'd put it to good use, right? So a couple of weeks go by, and I get a package in the mail with just just the book in it, <laughs> and uh, and oh, no. that gave me a, a couple of really big pieces of the narrative. The biggest one being uh, Willis Connor talking to his neighbors and and mm. and his side of what went down during those murders, which had been nowhere else um, captured. And also this guy. I was able to find one of the missing Connor boys. Um, and uh, and so that was a nice tie of the bow because he just vanishes in most of the Chronicles. So there was someone who used to bring him food in uh, in Louisiana and and has a whole sad to end of his life. He, he dies in a mental institution, um, but he was involved in Swamp boot, Bootlegging for a long time, always waiting for someone to come and get him, not knowing that the rest of his family had been pardoned, including himself. So... It's a, it's, a, it's a tragedy from start to finish. He's a mess. So oh, um, so yeah, so so that was a enormous surprise from the Connor mm-hmm. side of things. Um and from the from the Ranger side of things, there was a lot of surprises. I think I think one of the things I was surprised about was just the the, the operational tempo. Um, I thought that if I picked two years of of Ranger Service, that it was going to be a bite I could handle. Not realizing that when you really get into the records, all the places and all the things, and and in my idiocy, I picked. Oh well, they got in three shootouts during this time. That's going to make the things a lot easier. there's going to be interesting <laughs> things happening every step of the way. Oh God, every every place is a, a, a different kind of situation, a different victim or criminal you know, a, a different universe um, in a place in time, uh, different court cases. I was surprised at how bad the justice system was at prosecuting people. And I know that's like a standard sort of, you know, um, Dirty Harry kind of a rationale for a lot of like old Western movies, but that doesn't come from nowhere. Um, there's a, a revolving door that happens that makes shooting people a viable alternative from oh, a well. sort of strategic, <laughs> sort of a, effects-based kind of way. You want to stop people from cutting fences. The judge is very sympathetic and let off anyone you arrest. You catch him in the act, but you plug a few. And that <laughs> way, you don't have to go back to that county for a while. That is wow. rough justice, right? But that's that works in, in an environment where it does, that's Wild West type stuff right there. And that was what I was dealing with. And it was very interesting to put names and back histories and motivations to the people in the Western movies who are just running around in mustache, getting shot and killed, right? Um, oh. Or, you know, or, you know, everyone's got a, a, another side of what's going on. They're not always sympathetic. Um, and they're still criminals at the end of the day, most of them. But even the bad guys have a story, right?
0: Okay. What is the one thing that you wish you could have answered that you couldn't?
1: I would like to know how many people are buried in the Connor Cemetery. But uh, I can't get anyone to pay for a, a, a ground penetrating radar scan. Um, and,
0: and that's relevant for why?
1: It's more of a personal thing the ten okay. year old boy buried there. Okay. and he doesn't have a marker. Um, only the outlaw Connors seem to have markers. I got you you. know so it kind of bugs me. Um, you know, it's not very well tended. Um, the, the, the county does kind of what it, it can interestingly one of the feud that that feud descendant is the mm-hmm. person in charge of taking care of it so um ironies abound in sabine the one thing i didn't learn um you know there's a very ancillary sort of a case about the the um he's called the lone high women and he he robbed stage coaches and ballinger and one of my protagonists, main characters, James Brooks, who becomes a captain later and is a very famous ranger, arrests this guy and he's sentenced to 99 years in jail, but he's let out after the highway, the lone highwayman resurfaces and commits more similar, you know, or commits similar crimes. Another person's arrested. They get shot trying to escape. This is all brought up in court. And the guy who's sentenced to 99 years gets released again. Um, Brooks doesn't really have anything to say one way or the other. He arrests them. They get let out, whatever that's just par for the course. But, you know, I never found out one way or the other, whether someone maybe, you know, was put up to it and said, I'm the highway Rob lone highwayman to help spring his friend. And then some other innocent guy got ensnared, but thinking he, he was arrested and convicted. I never got my hands on the court records to really untangle this sort of mess. And, you know you're shooting in in a sense you're shooting at the record of one of the most famous Texas Rangers in their history and you're saying he may have gotten the wrong man but you're not quite sure it's not where you want to be exactly (laughs) but it is interesting and it sits right in the middle of my timeline I can't ignore it courageously ignore it um so uh so I just put it out there this is what happened and the fact that Brooks doesn't care one way or the other I guess is more said a little bit more about him too and uh and how he felt about revolving door justice which is germane because he became a very powerful long-standing judge there's a county named after him so his judicial (laughs) um the the the, the law and order the order part for him especially is, is germane to his history given um his career path later in life so i couldn't ignore that either for that reason
0: okay all right. So mentioned SpaceX. Just curious, how'd you gotten, you said Popper mechanics. Is that how you got involved with SpaceX and covering that? Like how'd you get interested in SpaceX?
1: Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I mentioned before I worked at Popper mechanics. I was on the staff for seven years. Um, and I still occasionally actually still write for him, um, as a freelancer, but, um, I just can't, can't seem to get, give it up. Cause once you're on the space beat, you know, it's hard to, to, to stop. Although I've, um, I've been covering SpaceX for national geographic these days. Um, but I started out when the last shuttle was launching. Um, I went to go see it for Popper Mechanics and, um, and write about it for the website and for the, for the magazine and all this. And during that tour, SpaceX offered up a tour of its facilities. And we said, oh, well, I guess this is the next thing. You know, everyone's here crying, literally crying about the, the, the last launch. But now we want to go to the private sector to try and build spaceships. And what, what, what is all this? So I went and saw the Falcon 9. Um, I got the the walk around, and I didn't realize I'd witnessed a, a significant historic handoff, right, from one way of doing business to another, a smarter way. Instead of building your own hardware, you you know you rent it. You know you have it built to spec, and then you know the the, the person who builds it can then rent that to whatever customer wants to to use it. You know it, it's the, it, it's not just that it was reusable, but it was Available for ticketing. And back then, you know, there was a lot of pipe dreams. We didn't really believe it. We, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and vaporware and spaceflight. Over time, you know, I'm covering it. I'm watching things happen in Texas. I'm living in Texas. I'm going to Starbase. It's dirt. Now there's a launch pad. Now there's launches. You know, everything, you know, they're delivering cargo. They're delivering astronauts. Everything that SpaceX set out to do, they're doing. And, you know, skeptics. And I was, I was a, a skeptic early on and, uh, but like a rational skeptic, I was never mm-hmm. a hater, but over the course of the years and the decades that they're no longer upstart, they're the standard bearer. And where would us space flight be without them? Um, but it's, it, it's an amazing run that, that I was able to witness covering these guys. And, uh, and you know, have they had missteps? Yeah. Fewer than most. Um, but yeah, a few, um, but their accomplishments are undeniable, right?
0: Yeah, so talk to me about Mars. <laughs> <laughs> because the, uh, the, the fascination that SpaceX is, um, I mean, they're largely government-funded. Is that correct? That's my understanding. Is that right?
1: No, not um, really anymore. Um, I mean, government-funded, they have tons of government contracts, but they launch for, they have communications satellites sure. that they launched but, but to get to
0: where they're at now they were largely um some kind of the government was sponsoring them with grants or, or whatever they weren't it wasn't someone just writing checks perpetually while they were trying to figure out how to build rockets
1: uh well yeah that person was musk <laughs> um but um after yeah yeah I mean the, the SpaceX operates this way and this this is a so they I mean the short answer is yeah but um in the in, in the beginning in the very beginning NASA said, we're going to provide seed money to a bunch of companies to see if they can make a rocket that's dependable enough that we could use it instead of building our own and maintaining our own. Right. And they seeded a bunch of companies and all of them have pretty much let them down except for orbital and, and, uh, flight sciences and these guys, Mm -hmm. um, to a lesser degree Boeing, but companies have gone out of business. They're too expensive, you know? it wasn't just them. So yeah, they they took that seed money. That was very early on, though. What happened after that was, hey, can you do this job for me? It's like, yeah, we're going to have to build this to spec. Can you give us some money to help launch that up? Well, yeah, we're going to build it into your milestones. If you can prove you do this, then you get another piece of the contract money. So it was always building up to actually doing something for NASA, which was Launching cargo, which has saved them billions, literally tens of billions, in the long run, and now astronauts, which is saving them untold amounts of headaches renting from the the Russians, the Soyuz, as well as saving billions of dollars. So, in the long run, it was a, one of the few things the government actually invested in that had a reasonable payoff at the end, <laughs> which is something that right. I, you know I cover defense and aerospace and NASA, and I see everything. A cost overrun. I don't ever see that kind of forward thinking and planning going ahead. And when you think about how much sense it makes, if everyone in the government agrees something, and it's either 100% wrong or 100% right, otherwise, they don't agree. So, commercial space, right, which is what they call this, Mm -hmm. this model Mm -hmm. has survived. It was born in the Bush administration, Mm -hmm. survived Obama survive trump and is surviving biden and nothing else has done that there's no other smarter way of going about this than that and everyone in the world is copying it so no i I, I, mean god forbid i say something nice about government and these people were seen as idiots they were stepped on senators were crapping all over them it was a hard road these guys were actually like nasa rebels who were trying to fight for something that was sustainable and they won and they've been driven out and these idiots like. like the current NASA administrator in there taking credit for the stuff they tried to stop. And that's the reality of what's happening now. So, you know, it ain't all roses, but, sure. but we're getting off the planet a lot easier now, um, mm-hmm. because of the way they're doing it. And, and SpaceX kicked down the door. Other people are following that model. Uh, you know, Hey, I'll take the warts, you know, yeah. and all, if it means that we can get off, you know, earth, uh, into orbit and beyond easier. This is the thing I'd like to see happen.
0: Yeah. So there's a book, um, I can't remember the exact title, the man who knew the way to the moon, perhaps is what it is. Um, it talks about the, the space race and originally according to this book. Um, we were going to build kind of a, I'm a, I'm not a space guy. So a, a platform or something that we could send the rocket, uh, a ship to, uh, dock. And then we could kind of leapfrog our way, um, and eventually mm-hmm. have full exploration, Uh, But then the race with the Russians messed that up and they did the, the orbiter lander thing. Um, With that being said, I don't, I just don't buy into the true Mars interest. I don't, I think, I think there's a lot of people who are talk about going. I I have a hard time believing that at the end of the day, there's someone who's going to go hop on a ship on a one way ticket to Mars and not come back. Maybe there's one or two, Um, but I, I don't, I don't, There is so much about this earth that we don't know. uh, Why are we chasing Mars? Like, help me understand that. Is it just like one of those, it's not really a goal, but we talk about it because it's of almost no interest to me to go to Mars.
1: I have two extremely contradictory things to say about that. (laughs) Um, The first thing would be the fact that you're doubtful just means that you're a thinking human being, right? Like there is actually nothing there that we want or need right um there just isn't i
0: it, you this can isn't make, going across the atlantic ocean to find you know spices it, or you know th- 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 yeah, yeah
1: this, if, if, we, if you want to explore the universe um and you want to, one of your stepping stones that you talked about go to the moon it's got it's got water ice so you can use mm-hmm. that for life support and to make fuel with it's uh it's close uh you get good communications you know we're going to have a bunch of satellites around there good coverage you know, it's it's relatively close in case something goes wrong, doesn't have, uh, uh, you know, that horrible atmosphere. It, it, it's, it's trying to kill you, sure. But a, every planet but ours is trying to kill you. Um, but it's got nice caves. You can make a nice home there. Helium 3 if you want to get crazy about it, there are reasons to go. Sure, uh, Astronomy on the far side, reasons to go. There is nothing like that about Mars. No reason to go. If someone offered me a ticket to be on the first boat to go, I would go. <laughs> and there's my two contradictory statements.
0: Hey, we all have them. We all have them. I can respect it. I can respect. I it. I,
1: I would go. No one's done it. No one's mm-hmm. been there. There there I know there are mysteries here. I know that I, I, God knows I make my living off of kicking, you know, the rocks over some sure. some of the smaller ones, but um I there are no, there's nothing like that kind of frontier. There just isn't. Um, and the fact that it's there and we can do it, I guess I'm not like, you know, the, the the monkey in the tree that Hyland used to talk about. I just want to climb up to the higher branch. I don't know what's up on the higher branch, but I'm going to climb up to the higher branch. I'm, I guess I'm not monkey. Um, yeah. I, hey, I, there's nothing, I want nothing prove that we can do it. And, real, and, real and, yeah, you know, there's I I'm I'm not big on humanity generally speaking, but um, but I don't want to see us get, you know, extinguished. I'd like to see the experiment continue, and the Earth is a zero sum game, you know, in, in the long run. Better to better to hit the road and sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, I think I mean, how long does it take to get to Mars currently? What, like two years, something like that.
1: Uh yeah, well it depends on where it is. Okay. Um that's why you gotta it depends on um the on shortest flight would be what two years? Yeah, yeah. You could do it two, two and a half years, okay, probably.
0: So, yeah, I just to be a me, lot just, of bad radiation between there
1: yeah, here and there
0: too. I, I just think okay, two and a half years on a ship with people, okay, that's that's tough. Then I get off, we set foot, we go, Yay, we build the tent and we go out the next day, and we're like, Well, this is still cool, but but what do we do now?
1: <laughs> me, your life yeah, has purpose because you're fighting for survival
0: yeah
1: you're also in a highly regimented everything you do has to be more or less in some kind of a checklist because yeah. what oh, you're yeah. doing is going to be inherently dangerous yeah and, and i everywhere around who's trying to kill you um <laughs> what you do how do you live now i mean we're podcasting i ain't never going to meet you you know <laughs> we could do commerce just like this we could be sitting in our respective pods on mars right now now, I don't think we're sitting a simulation. I'm not that kind of kook, but uh, but we, you know, I lived in New York City, in D.C., in Mexico City, in Dallas um, before I moved down here to Portland, like a human, and I wasn't too far off from a pod person from Mars up there. You know, you go from one controlled environment to another. You you communicate remotely. You do your commerce remotely, and uh, and every once in a while, when you want to find a mate, you go to a, a common place and then you find one you know that's that's it that's modern life we're being groomed for space flight um you know our physical bodies now that's going to take a little bit more but mentally we'll adapt uh, that's kind of my thought about it
0: okay for so better or worse, on we'll mars, i just need you to commit that i will be the first podcast interview you do can i get that commitment you got it there we go deal <laughs> you got you got yourself a martian but all I don't right
1: know if Elon wants to spend his last days on mars with me around um, yeah. I don't think he Listen, hates me, but I don't think he likes me that much either. I might update my Twitter bio.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Martian <laughs> podcast
1: books. <laughs> coming, coming soon. Martian podcast.
0: Okay, where can people follow your work? Obviously, we're going to link to the book in the show notes, but website, social media. Where do you want to send? Where do you want to send people to?
1: Uh, yeah, I have a, a Twitter handle. I I try to follow my, some myriad interests, uh, mostly space flight and military stuff. Um, that's at Papalardo Joe. And then joe um, which has the, all the books and the bio. And I have another book coming out later this year um, or early next. Um, it's due this year. I know that much. <laughs> um, so uh, about Roy Bean and his brothers. So uh, another Texas legend book. So that's coming out. If people want to keep an eye out for that, it's uh, on the way.
0: Awesome. Okay, well, we will link to all of that in the show notes and look forward to... Uh, your next book and perhaps getting you back on. And of course, when you go to Mars, we're going to have you on then. So thank you so much for your time today.
1: Absolutely. Whenever you want me, uh, I'm here for a discussion.
0: Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at WarRoomMedia.com? helps keep the show going and ad free. Thank you so much.